0: Big thanks to our sponsor, Microsoft Azure, for supporting the first season of Function. Startups, governments, and 90% of Fortune 500 companies are already running on Microsoft Cloud. Join them and find new ways to achieve more. Stay productive with familiar tools, develop and deploy where you want with a consistent hybrid environment, and build engaging apps with intelligent features. You can bring your bold ideas to life faster, push them further, and scale them worldwide. Start your free account at azure.com trial. That's azure.com slash trial. Welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash. Today we are going to hit on a question that almost all of you have thought about at some point. You've certainly seen somebody complain about if you are on Twitter, which is why doesn't Twitter let you edit your tweets? The thing is, I've been there. I've totally been that person where I tweet something and immediately think, "Oh man, I really got to phrase that differently," or "I wish I could just fix that typo." And I think everybody's had that feeling. I think for most of us that are like sort of regular people on Twitter and aren't, aren't celebrities, that wouldn't just let us fix like if we had a typo, or if we had a grammar mistake, something common. But what about when the stakes are higher? Like, how would an edit feature help an organization if they needed to get reliable information out to the world, like a news organization that's reporting during a time of crisis, and they want to be able to report the news responsibly? We have breaking news for you. It's coming out of Tucson, Arizona. Several people have been shot. The Tucson Citizen newspaper is reporting that among those shooting victims is Congresswoman Gabrielle Gifford, Back in 2011, Arizona Congresswoman Gabby Giffords was shot during a mass shooting that left six people dead and several others injured. And the scene was chaos, as you'd expect. There's first responders scrambling everywhere, trying to help the wounded. There's reporters that are rushing to the scene to try and get more information. And we understand that Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords is among 12 people shot at a grocery store just hours ago, and that is according to a Democratic source. There are unconfirmed reports that there are fatalities, And I should tell you, and it's disturbing news, that NPR is now reporting that the Congresswoman, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, has in fact died. Now, as we now know, Giffords was wounded that day, but she did not die in the shooting. Andy Carvin was the social media editor for NPR at the time. And NPR had reported on air that Giffords had died, so Andy tweeted out the same information. And the thing is, Andy's tweet was only up for 25 minutes before he quickly issued a correction, another follow-up tweet, that said they were conflicting reports on Gifford's condition. But the thing is, that 25 minutes is all the time it took for that inaccurate report to reverberate on Twitter and everywhere else across the Internet. Other news organizations like CNN and Fox News ran with the report, and they all cited NPR as the source.
1: The NPR News Twitter account at that point in time had around 2 million followers. By today's standards of some celebrity accounts, not particularly huge. But for then, it was one of the large uh, news accounts on Twitter. And so I think it's safe to say that the tweet reverberated much more broadly than the actual newscast did because it was retweetable. It landed on people's desktops and they could click a button and, and ping pong it further.
0: NPR eventually issued a correction, an apology for the mistake on air and on Twitter. But maybe an edit button would have stopped the tweet from reaching so many people with incorrect information. The incident happened almost eight years ago now, and Twitter's changed a lot since then. But one thing that hasn't changed is that there is still no edit button for tweets. Andy Carvin is a visiting professor at the University of British Columbia School of Journalism, where he talks to students about how to create and navigate digital news. And he joined us on Function to take me back to that tweet in 2011. We talked about how an edit button for tweets could possibly be used to report the news more responsibly and how he might want such a feature to work. After my conversation with Andy, we'll hear from Leslie Miley, who was formerly an engineering manager at Twitter and also someone who thought deeply about the impact that Twitter has on the world. Andy Carvin, thank you for joining us on Function. Can you give people a little bit of background about what it is that you do, and especially what you were doing a few years ago online?
1: Currently, I'm a visiting professor at the University of British Columbia up in Vancouver, where I'm teaching in the journalism school, uh, social media and uh, visual storytelling. Uh, But I've spent the better part of the last 10, 15 years working at different news organizations, experimenting with ways to incorporate uh, social platforms into the news gathering process uh i ran this i founded and ran the social media team at npr for a number of years um most recently i was senior editor at large at now this news up in new york so uh been playing in the social space for a while and uh uh been been around with it for the the many highs and lows of, of the whole thing Right.
0: So, one of the things that's really interesting is you—you've been in the thick of how how do we report news on social media and how do we, you know, tell people what's happening in the world and and I want to go back to uh, a moment a few several years ago now when you were at uh, NPR and uh, this is in January of 2011 as almost everybody will recall uh, there was a really horrific shooting of uh, Gabby Giffords who was then Congresswoman um, and NPR was one of the Uh, first outlets that was covering the story. Can you give us a little bit of context about what it was like at NPR covering the story and what happened in the minutes after the news broke?
1: Well, um, something a lot of people probably don't realize is that uh, NPR, unlike a lot of news networks, isn't a 24-7 operation. There generally isn't a huge number of people working on the weekends apart from running the, the shows that happen the weekends. So beyond that, it's, it's it's a much smaller team than what you would expect on a typical weekday. And on that particular day, Gabby Giffords was having a, a meetup essentially at a local uh, supermarket. Uh, it started around uh, noon East Coast time and very quickly a gunman came, shot her and a number of other people. Um, multiple people died. Um, uh, it was an absolutely catastrophic situation. Quincy Incidentally, uh, the wife of a local NPR news director was across the street at the time and was and called her husband, and he was able to get there to the scene while she was uh, – while Congressman Giffords was still there injured and uh, hadn't been taken away in the ambulance yet. And so word quickly spread through uh, the public radio system that this had happened, and uh, they went on air locally pretty quickly and – we started reporting it uh, somewhere around one pm local time, uh, one pm. east Coast time. And um, on that particular day, I, it, I I had a day off. it was a weekend, and so I was sitting at a restaurant with uh, my wife and a four-year- old and a two- year old uh, just kind of relaxing and having no idea what was happening at that particular moment. And behind the scenes, uh, as they were, approaching the top of the hour for the next major newscast, uh, a news director in Arizona called and said that they talked to someone in the Pima uh, County Sheriff's Office confirming that Congressman Giffords had passed away. So uh, the newscast staff scrambled to confirm that. And just before, like literally minutes before they had to go on air, uh, a congressional reporter on Capitol Hill confirmed through one of her congressional sources that she had died as well. And so with those two sources in mind, they went on air and announced that she uh, had passed away. This then was sent around as an email alert. Uh, It was the lead story on the NPR website. And uh, I wouldn't have known it was even happening except for the fact that I got the email alert. And knowing that NPR didn't have a social media staff running weekends at that point in time, uh, I looked at the the Twitter feed for at NPR news, and nothing there weren 't any recent updates as to what had happened, so uh, I copied and pasted the latest headline, which said that she had passed away and a link to it and sent it out approximately 212, 12 2. 15 p.m. So almost 15 minutes after the newscast. And having felt I'd, I'd done my part, I uh, finished my, my lunch, uh, put the kids in the car, got in with my wife and started driving 20 minutes to get back home. In that 20 minute period, chaos broke out because of uh, All sorts of people in the news industry started contacting folks at NPR saying, why are you saying this? We've confirmed she's in surgery right now. She has not passed away. And so uh, NPR's uh, news blogger at the time pretty quickly started posting updates on the blog saying that there were conflicting reports. But at this point, no one was running the Twitter feed because – I'm in my car with my kids. And when I get home, I I go back on Twitter and turn on the TV and look at all the out replies I received from colleagues and peers uh, in the industry saying that she's still alive. And so um, I sent out a tweet about, it must have been 20 25 minutes after that original tweet saying that there are conflicting reports about her her status and because npr only does live newscasts at the top of the hour on weekends another 25 minutes would pass before uh anyone went on air to say that she was still alive they didn't issue a correction they just said that she was uh in in surgery but um the, the impact there was no way of taking it back at this point uh reuters cnn fox uh the new york times so many news organizations apart from a small number such as the ap uh ran with the story saying that npr had confirmed that she had died and had some of them used uh found additional sources claiming the, the same thing uh but then they started retracting it as they learned more about it and Because those news organizations were often uh, doing minute-by-minute live coverage, rolling coverage, they were able to correct it quickly. But because of the structure of NPR and the hourly newscast and the fact that there weren't people in the newsroom to run a rolling live breaking newscast, the change in in the reporting wasn't issued until uh, an hour after that first report. It was a mess.
0: How many people in an organization like that have – the login for the, you know, uh, public-facing news account on their phone for for Twitter or, you know, a social media account?
1: Well, let's see. This was early 2011. And um, we had a very small social media team. There were just three or four of us at the time. And some a number of producers had access to it, but they tended to be weekday producers. Yep. Um, th- there wasn't a protocol for managing breaking news through social platforms at that point in time at NPR mm-hmm. wh- when it came to weekends. If something like this had happened on a weekday, it would be a matter of a managing editor running down uh, to one of our desks and say, get over here. We're, we're, we're starting to cover this story. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, it became clear how NPR screwed this up. It turns out that the uh, source that the local news director used, uh, that's person from the sheriff's office, and the source we used in Washington, D.C. Co- uh, from Congress, they both got the information from the same person, Another who happened to be another law enforcement official locally. Mm. And so what NPR didn't know at the time is that there weren't actually two sources. There were two people repeating the same right. thing they had heard from one source. Right. And... If protocols had been followed and if they had contacted the executive producer of the newscast who would have been home on weekend at that point, there's a very good chance this would never have happened because there is normally a standard of three independent confirmations to report a death. Mm-hmm. So uh, to say mistakes were made is a bit of an understatement. Mm-hmm.
0: So this is interesting because I, I just I – just I'm sort of stuck on this moment being a, a time when a, a you know, major media organization – it's still very casual about social media. This is 2011, and it's and it's interesting to think of how much this has changed since then, right? Where where there would be much more of a mature process or a you know formal process, even on the weekends, probably.
1: Oh, very much so. The uh, social media at the time was not considered part of the newsroom. We weren't even on the same floor as the newsroom. We were near a bunch of the tech folks and and the music team. So along with the uh, sort of process isolation there was the physical isolation of our team not being fully integrated and so even though we we had started doing social media back in 2007 2008 it took many many years for the newsroom writ large to realize that we had to be fully incorporated if this ever was going to work effectively
0: and and these days it feels like both both what journalists do has evolved to have more process around it and and that's certainly you know this is you know something you were early to learn, but others have followed and learning these lessons. And then maybe the, the audience, the followers on social media are a little better at understanding the first stories that come out might be fuzzy or inaccurate or, or, or something like that.
1: Well, I- in an ideal world, um, the Twitter audience would be more aware of that. But, you know, the reality is there's always going to be a percentage of the online public that's going to retweet and comment upon anything they see. And in some ways, it's their retweeting of it and sharing it within their own networks that ends up being the most insidious part of it. Right. Uh, but, you know, there, there are ways of, of, of trying to push back like I, I, a number of years ago I worked with the folks at on the media to produce uh, what they called I think it was like a, a news literacy consumer uh, handbook and it was basically a top 10 list of all the things you should know during a major breaking news story like for example there there's almost never two shooters during a, a shooting incident and a, a bunch of others that that we, we worked on and wrote out and so every time there's a big story it's 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 always heartening to see NPR and and other folks sharing that list because it's just as relevant today as it was before. But practices... In news organizations still haven 't changed in many ways, so if you if you turn on a cable news broadcast you 're going to hear plenty of pundits saying i don 't want to speculate, but dot 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 and then they go ahead and speculate <laughs> and so you 're seeing what plays out on social media is often mirroring exactly what 's playing out live on TV right. and uh, what i 've seen on so many occasions is the uh, the mistakes that get amplified are first shared via broadcast, whether it's TV, radio, or cable. They get amplified by social, and social is generally able to Uh, respond with a correction or at least a questioning of the facts uh, faster than the people who are on air. Because, you know, you can look directly at the phone and have people saying, this is crazy. That's not true. Check your sources again. Whereas if if you're on air talking away, you have to wait for your producer to talk in your ear and you're, you know, you may be checking your your desktop, uh, your laptop to see what's on on your tweet deck, uh, but you're still processing a lot of information. So... In some ways, things are better, but at the same time, I think there's still a sizable number of people who will share pretty much anything they see or what they want to believe.
0: Right. So let me let me actually get into that point about the amplification and correction. You know, because this, this is a big part of this is part of why it's so insidious or so dangerous is the amplification. Um, and and one of the challenges there is, uh, you know, the sort of old story about the the you know the lies traveled around the world before the truth even gets its shoes on. Um, even where it's not a lie, but it's just merely something that's inaccurate
1: or an error, uh, the same... Do you know what I love about that quote? Uh, It's been attributed to Winston Churchill, Mark Twain, and half a dozen other people, and versions of it can be traced all the way back to Jonathan Swift. And so even the quote gets misquoted and misattributed to people, which I just find deliciously ironic.
0: Right, right. Entirely appropriately misattributed, right? Yep. Um, So to that point... um, we think about amplification, the, the the knee-jerk reaction from people, especially outside of media or outside of tech, is, well, if you know everybody's going to amplify this and retweet it, shouldn't we be able to just go in and edit the tweet uh, and update it and say this is the corrected information? Uh,
1: what are your feelings on that? Oh, absolutely. I've been uh, begging Twitter for years, going back to at least 2008, for some sort of mechanism to do this. I think in, in an ideal world… Uh, After I sent that tweet regarding Congresswoman Giffords, there would have been a way for me to edit the tweet, uh, and the act of editing it would – be immediately replace and re, uh, every retweet that went out it would either at reply or DM everyone who had shared it and it would not only would it be corrected but it would alert anyone who had helped amplify it it wouldn't be uh, just the ability to edit the tweet there would also have to be uh, a mechanism that alerts directly the people who might have contributed to amplifying it
0: so, so so there's an interesting thing here because one of the big issues around media manipulation and misinformation Information on social networks, not just Twitter, but Facebook and and the others, especially in the sort of current political environment where we've seen these things be targeted, whether it's by you know groups within the U.S. you know here domestically or international efforts, is this ability to sort of throw doubt on what's shared on these networks? So the undermining of veracity, the undermining of credibility, is a big tactic, and we see sites that regularly will you know post a headline that they know to be false, wait for people to screenshot it, and then. Uh, amend it and say, oh, you know, sorry, our bad and, and, and like other tactics like that. If we look at that environment where um, there is a, almost a, you know, the, the, the war on whether something can be known to be true or not has a whole playbook around it. Do you think that idea of the editable uh, tweet or the, the thing where you still alert everybody who's retweeted something is going to be relevant? Do you think people amplify something because they want to share the correct information or because it it reifies their view of the world?
1: Uh, generally speaking, I wish it were more the former, but w- we just have to be honest that for a lot of people they mm-hmm. they amplify things because they want to look impressive around their friends that you know there 's something that they believe to be true and they know their peers will feel the same, and so they they end up pushing things along and so there is no technical mechanism. That could ever be created that's going to get a a small percentage of the public to do what I consider their civic duty uh, to correct uh, false information they would have shared, whether it's for personal reasons, political reasons, cultural reasons, they have decided that. They are either so mistrustful or want to sow that mistrust that uh, it doesn't matter what the platforms do or, or third parties creating apps to try to make this easier. Um, I, I, I don't see there being a solution that's going to get around these trolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the best we can do is have tools that will uh, alert the people, uh, uh, that would ideally alert everyone. But perhaps allow you to concentrate on the people in your network who you know have the most influence. And even while that's going on, uh, it it certainly doesn't hurt to uh, send a DM or get on the phone with people you know who have large followers and tell them what you've just corrected so they go ahead and do the same thing. So I think the solution still involves whoever first uh, shared the misinformation accidentally they they have the responsibility to contact as many people as possible who can help make that correction but even with the best editing and versioning tools that a platform could come up with you will still have bad actors out there who are going to make a mess of things
0: so that's that's an interesting point because the other thing that happens and especially you know these days but it might have even started back in 2011 is the the on twitter the twitter thread so somebody replies to a tweet with additional information sometimes that's used for corrections now right so if you say you know you know the sun has risen in the west and and somebody replies and says the sun has risen in the east and that's part of the same thread it might carry through that that user interface or that that choice in the app wasn't there you know 7 years ago but it is there now is that is that a sufficient correction
1: i think it certainly helps If a news organization or an individual posts something that they find out to be incorrect, I think the responsible thing to do would be to uh, reply to yourself in your own thread to correct it and then perhaps even send out a separate tweet uh, so um, there's something independently not getting buried within a thread. But uh, having it in a thread and then explaining how you made the mistake, which I think is key, uh, is really important uh, because if you are going to – maintain trust uh, with uh, the public or if you're going to attempt to regain that trust after you've made a mistake, you have to hold yourself accountable and be as transparent as possible. I always find it frustrating when a correction is made and then they just move on as if it was no big deal. When I've made mistakes, uh, I've tried to explain step by step how I got to that point. And hopefully by doing that being sincere in trying to explain how we got to this point helps reinforce uh, the bonds of trust that I have with my online community. Mm-hmm.
0: Let me let me ask you a slightly different question, which is: um, What about deleting it if you, if something's been shared by an organization that is that is you know they find out is erroneous, they find out as a mistake? Should they just take it away, take it away, delete that that tweet, that Facebook post?
1: This is one of the toughest questions, and I don't think there is a single solid answer. If you pull... A bunch of news organizations, you are going to find some who say in their standards and practices that you need to delete it. Others will say that you keep it and um, use follow-up tweets to correct. On that particular day in in 2011, uh, for example, Reuters decided to delete their tweet. But NPR did not, or at that point in time, honestly, I did not um, because it was a weekend and there was no protocol for these sorts of things. But a number of people called me out on that. uh, And my response to them was, uh, we're already in a bit of a lose-lose situation because I've posted this information. It turns out to be horrifyingly incorrect, but because NPR gets pulled into politics so easily because of the small amount of federal funding it gets, that if I hit the delete button and got rid of it, some people would treat that as a cover-up, that we were trying to hide our error. And I can guarantee you that some member of Congress would end up calling one of the senior editors, asking about the deletion and wanting a paper trail for how that decision was made.
0: And that's interesting because that's sort of specific to the organization. But there's this broader question about what deleting signifies, what... Uh, replying or threading signifies what uh, editing would signify? Because you, you have on networks like Facebook and some other, you know, lots of other platforms where you can edit for a, sometimes for a little while, sometimes going forward. Um, and then there's a little note that says that you did that. Is that enough accountability for, for making a change?
1: You know, I, th- I think there's a stronger argument today Uh, When it comes to deleting a tweet, because another thing that's changed in over these last seven or eight years is the whole notion of native retweets. Uh, Back then, people would send out a a tweet that would begin begin with the letters RT and would have the text following it. And so uh, a tweet... The uh, retweets that would go out would be amplified uh, by individual user accounts under their own names. And so if I ended up deleting that NPR tweet, it would still exist in other forms based on people manually retweeting it. Today, at least, if a news organization chose to delete it, all of those native retweets would disappear along with it. But it still raises the issue of accountability and transparency and um, – Uh, I think every news organization has to decide, is it worth having that tweet continuing to pinball around the universe for a period of time while you are adding to the thread, correcting it? Or do you start with a clean slate, delete it, and create a new thread? I I still don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think... Uh, there's a strong argument that could be made in both cases, mm.
0: and it I mean it seems like there's something analogous in almost all these networks. Like you, you can't easily go into Instagram and replace a photo that you've already posted, right? So if you're saying, oh my 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 hair is out of place, and I'd like to put a better photo in there, but keep it that same post with you know all the likes and and the responses. Um, do you think do you think they should enable that?
1: Uh, i think I think they probably should. Uh, especially uh, in in the case of of platforms like Instagram, in some of my work uh, over the years, uh, one of the things my teams would try to do, that if we saw a a photo was being shared that we knew to be out of context or a hoax, uh, we would watermark it in the most uh, flagrant of ways to – make it clear that anyone seeing the image, it's stamped right ac- across it in, l- in large red all-cap letters, fake or debunked, and then having the text explaining why this particular image has nothing to do with, with um, the news at hand. Uh, so yeah, ideally, uh, if, if Instagram had either a method to replace the photo or to overlay it with some sort of watermark that acts as a correction. Because you can edit the text, but you know not everyone is going to read the text, and so I think at minimum, being able to watermark it with, with with new text on top of it, or some sort of X or check mark acknowledging something's been confirmed or debunked, would make news organizations' lives a lot easier. So I'm curious here about uh, sort of a a big takeaway. So you know, we
0: we started this conversation talking about. That moment uh, with Congresswoman Giffords, and you know it's been, you know, seven almost eight years since then, and you you spend time with students, right? You are the authority. You are the one that's teaching them about how to use these platforms. If you look at the responsibility of how to use these networks, you look at uh, the gravity of sharing information and what happens when something is shared out of context or with something inform- you know inaccurate information. What are the responsibilities of the platforms and what are the responsibilities of us as individuals or even as journalists or or cultural
1: creatives for how we use these platforms? You know, starting with us as individuals, um, uh, like I alluded to earlier, I I truly believe that people who share information on social networks have a civic responsibility to get it right. Right. And people need to understand the gravity of their own influence. You know, even if they only have uh, 30 followers on Twitter or 30 friends on Facebook, and it's just their crowd of people that they hang out with at school, you still have a responsibility to make sure that what you're passing along to them is correct. Because otherwise, you become um, an enabler of misinformation and and an enabler of the spread of distrust in people in platforms and institutions and i think it's in some ways what needs to happen is developing a cultural sense of responsibility that as you use social media and as your network of people grows you have to be self-reflective on the potential power you have to uh, be a leader among your peers in terms of sharing information or how you can potentially become a problem uh, in terms of sharing misinformation. And, you know, a lot of people are just going to brush that idea off and say, I, you know, I don't care. I'm just talking to my buddies here. But, The reason why this stuff gets around everywhere is because uh, something that may feel like it's peer-to-peer at the beginning continues to expand and expand and expand until it's too late to put it back in the box. And so unless we can get uh, as many people as possible who utilize these tools to recognize their social responsibility or their civic duty to um, to be as factual as possible. Uh, I think we're going to continue seeing plenty of people share stuff and then just move on, whether it's correct or not. Um, and you'll never get everyone to do it. There will always be a percentage of the population that just does not give a damn about what they just shared. But they're probably – Many more people somewhere in the middle that shared something, sincerely thought it was true, and if you made it easier for them to to send the correction out, they would probably do it. And so then that gets to the, the, the responsibility of the platforms and what mechanisms they can create that allow people to amplify corrections and fact-checking uh, among their own networks. Because it's very hard for the news industry writ large to convince the platforms to uh, get their engineers spending lots of time in product development, making changes just for our industry. I think we need to be able to communicate to the platforms that this is a much larger cultural and societal problem. and, And we need to put tools in the hands of members of the general public and find ways of educating them and making it as seamless as possible for them to be even a little bit more responsible in how they use social media, uh, it would make a big difference.
0: Andy Carvin, thank you for joining us on Function and for all your insights into how our social networks work.
1: Thanks, Anil. I really appreciate it. After
0: the break, we'll hear from Leslie Miley, a former engineering manager for Twitter. On Function, we explore the stories behind the world's most impactful technology. Coming up next, we'll hear an advertiser segment
2: from Microsoft Azure. The building blocks for industry in the 21st century aren't cement blocks and steel beams, but digital tools and platforms.
1: The way we look at a a new building is that it's a smart building, it's a cognitive building, it's fully connected, it's able to be optimized through digital platforms and digital technology.
2: That's Dale Brett. He's a co-founder and chief product officer at Willow, a technology company that creates a digital map of the physical world in high-res detail. It's called a digital twin.
1: With a digital twin, we can see all of the context of that building live in a digital format on our computer online.
2: Willow takes data from all of the systems inside a building, the lights, the heating system, which meeting rooms are in demand, and stores it on the Azure cloud. Then, Willow uses machine learning algorithms to understand this data and make smart decisions about the built environment. It's really
1: about the data analytics, which then allows us to see how's the temperature been going, the air quality, has it been operating at 100% capacity, or are there certain components that show us we can do predictive maintenance?
2: Then, the team can apply these learnings to new projects and easily bring them to scale. All this is why the team at Willow uses Microsoft Azure, Learn more about the tools you can use to build a smarter world and business with Azure. Try a new Azure free account at Azure.com slash trial. com slash trial.
0: Thanks, Microsoft Azure, for sponsoring Function. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Function. I'm Anil Dash. Okay, so clearly there's an argument to be made for Twitter to introduce a feature that lets us edit our tweets. In fact, it's one of the most requested features that people ask for. And Twitter's own CEO, Jack Dorsey, actually talked about the idea of editing tweets when the idea came up at the Power of 18 conference in India.
3: People want edit because they make mistakes on Twitter and they want to quickly fix them. That's a lot more achievable than allowing people to edit any tweet all the way back in time, because what happens with that? If I say something, um, like, um, I tweet something that you agree with and then you retweet that. And then I edit my tweet to something that you disagree with. You've retweeted now something that you disagree with and that's what we need to prevent. And there's a bunch of things that we could do to show a change log and show, um, how a tweet has been changed. And we're looking at all this stuff. So we've, we've been considering edit for, for quite some time.
0: So it sounds like letting people edit tweets could be complicated from a technical perspective, but extremely complicated from an ethical perspective. I talked to Leslie Miley about this. Now, Leslie is a former engineering manager at Twitter, and he's also led engineering teams for Slack and for Google. And these days, he's the chief technology officer of the Obama Foundation. I especially wanted to talk to Leslie because he's one of the entire tech industry's best thinkers about how to translate doing the right thing into the actual features we use. And he did a lot of that at Twitter, working with their trust teams or safety teams around making sure people had a good experience and really pushed hard for people to get what they wanted out of the platform without a lot of the attacks and the stress and the harassment and the abuse that people often associate with Twitter. Leslie, welcome to function Anil. Thank you for having me. so we'll get into the the nitty gritty of the edit button first i want to I want to back up a little bit. You spent some time at Twitter. When were you there? How did you end up at the company?
3: uh It was a drunken night in san Francisco no <laughs> um, no uh, <laughs> no, uh it, it they they reached out to me uh, oddly enough and and while I had been a frequent user of the service, I, I'd never thought about working there and And when I met some of the folks uh Dick Costello, in particular, you know, he's he's really a dynamic leader, and 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 really just encouraged me to to take a chance on on coming to Twitter and and uh, you know seeing seeing what I could make there. Uh, And I I didn't come there to do product initially. I I actually joined to do uh, a function that could
0: be best described as DevOps. DevOps is development operations, which is providing the infrastructure for your code to run your software. Yes. Uh, However, after about a year, uh, I was
3: approached to do uh, kind of a revamp of the mute button uh, that uh, Twitter had rolled out a few months before. It had gone over really poorly. Uh, They had to essentially retract or you know, uh, take, the, take the feature back to its original uh, point. And, and then we were going to try again. And, and it was really an interesting situation because no one wanted to do it. And I couldn't understand why. And when I started asking people around the company why, they, they said, because anyone who ever tries to touch safety, security, or abuse and harassment at Twitter ends up getting fired uh, or quitting. And uh, it was just this black hole of product feature work that no one wanted to do. And, and I thought it was a great opportunity because it was hitting upon uh, population groups that I cared about, generally women and people of color who, who are, uh, I think, abused more on Twitter than, than most people. So, so I took that on, and that's, that's how I got kind of started getting involved in uh, feature and product work at Twitter.
0: All right. So you were brought in by Dick Costello, who at the time was the CEO of Twitter, right? Yes. And you start to work on a mute button, which is one of the most maybe contentious features of that era of Twitter. You said they had to try and launch this thing twice.
3: Launched it. It, it, it just it had terrible response. Uh, activists were up in arms. Of course, they were tweeting. They were talking to the press. Uh, I, I believe Dick actually apologized for this publicly.
0: <laughs> Never a good sign for your feature if that's the way it starts. <laughs>
3: Never, never. I think he probably tweeted out an apology and rolled the feature back. and And then we I was given an opportunity to put together a product team uh, to go and fix it. and And we fixed that. and in fixing that, we we realized I realized that we needed a function around safety and security and 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 started to to build out a team for that. And, and that was the team that uh, in 2014, 2015 uh, was handling, uh, that, that redid mute, that redid the block, excuse me, not block. Uh, it was a tweet. It was 21 steps to report a tweet for abuse or harassment or violent threats. And in, in our work, we actually reduced
0: that to six steps. So, so that's a huge leap forward. And it gives us a glimpse into what it takes to get Something as what feels to a user as simple as a block button or a report button or a mute button uh, takes a ton of work from a product team to be able to do this stuff. What are some of the considerations that come up? Like like how do you think about when a feature or a button is implemented in a platform like Twitter, the way it rolls out, like in terms of the number of users or the way it works around the world? Like what are all the the – Big considerations that maybe a ordinary user doesn't know about. You know, I wish I wish I could answer that question from a 2015
3: perspective rather than a 2018 perspective because so much has changed since then. Hmm. And, and maybe maybe I'll give you an example when we changed the report a tweet function. So so first we had to dig into the current features, like what's going on here, why is this so difficult, and and when when I went through and counted the steps and, and said why why should it take twenty one steps to report someone uh, for tweeting out a death threat against you or someone you know, an incredible death threat. And, and when I when you know, asked around the company, the answer that I kept coming back with was that uh, years earlier, there were so many reports for tweets for a variety of violations or perceived violations that the user services team couldn't keep up with it. So they intentionally made it more difficult. To report a tweet, so they didn't have as many reports. Wow! So, so, so th- therein lies: How do you, you know, go and fix this? And what does this mean? When we redid the feature and rolled it out, and I believe we rolled it out to twenty-five percent of our user base, uh, which you know at the time was probably coming up on three hundred million monthly active users. The number of, and, and I may not be fully uh, clear on this because it's been several years, but but the number of reports. That were that were received, I think jumped ten x uh, at a rollout of twenty five percent, and it flooded user services. They could not keep up, and 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 we had to kind of take a step back. So so that's why I said it's difficult to to give you i uh, I'd like to give you a two thousand and fifteen perspective mm-hmm. and not a two thousand and eighteen right. perspective, because some of the the points that you want to look at when you're doing a feature is that you know how how is this going to impact. Uh, how users interact with with uh, your service. Uh, how is this going to impact the, the you know fr- things from latency in your in your product, uh, things from you know how many reports your user services team gets, how fast they can respond to them, uh, you know, and even you know, things as as simple as how much do you let someone write in a text field for a report for a tweet, right? Because you don't want somebody to be able to put War and Peace in there, but you also don't want to limit it to 140 characters, so. So, so there, there, there was a lot of, of consideration that had to go into making. Oh, how do you, you know, do the report a tweet now? How, you know, how are we going to do this from a uh, a product perspective, from iOS, Android, and web? Uh, one of the other considerations we had to, to to make, and I think it was the right consideration at the time, was to. Go from a native experience uh, to for, for this particular feature to a web view because we realized that while it didn't wasn't one of the most highly trafficked areas on in the Twitter app, uh, it was something that we could do from in a web view that would allow us to uh, make changes both on web, Android, and iOS all at the
0: same time. Mm-hmm. And so, to explain to folks who might not know what that means, what it, what it meant is you shifted from. That app that runs right on your iPhone or right on your Android phone into basically a form that worked as it would in a web browser but lived within the app. And that lets you experiment a little bit more or work a little bit more quickly in getting out like changes to to users. So that's that's a great glimpse into how it gets real complicated real quickly when you've got hundreds of millions of people on a platform. Now I want to shift a little bit into how do you decide this is the button we're going to work on? This is the feature we're going to work on. Is that the sort of thing where a normal person on the team can say, you know, I'd like to build an edit button on Twitter? Or is that a, you know, top-down, uh, a, a CEO, Jack Dorsey, or CEO, Dick Costolo, comes and says from on high, now it's time for us to all assemble around building an edit button? The somewhat simple
3: answer to that question is Yes. <laughs> uh, it, it actually it actually happens in, in both ways. Okay, it, it's fascinating because in a lot of tech companies, everyone from an engineer, a solo engineer, to the CEO, can suggest a feature. And in 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 some cases, uh, a lot of features come from both ends. Right? They come from the engineer who just converted from their internship uh, to the CEO who doesn't like something. And now these are these are not normal cases, but it does happen. Generally it comes from a product team that consists of a product manager, consists of a UX person, user experience person, consists of an engineer, uh, you know, maybe a technical program manager. And and you know, we, we look at things like whether or not you're going to, you know, you're trying to move a particular number, a particular metric, are you trying to get more users? Are you trying to better understand how people are using something, right? So you may want to, to what we call instrument or add logging. So and that's something you know a lot about, uh, add logging to a, uh, to, to a feature to understand how people are using it, so that you can, you know, better modify the feature in the future. So it's uh it really is up to the product team to to set what we call okrs or objectives and key results and those should have metrics or numbers that we 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 want to to move in one direction or another like more engagement on this particular feature or more users or you know less reports coming in or in something like uh the report a tweet button, you know, we really wanted to make it simpler, and we were going to to measure that, you know, by how fast people could actually complete the process, when in reality, what we really should have been measuring, strangely enough, uh, was the number of reports coming in.
0: Okay, so let's wave our magic wand and pretend that we have the power, the ability to uh, cause somebody at Twitter or some product team at Twitter to think about doing an edit button. And, you know, one of the reasons I ask this, I think there's a lot of people on Twitter that get frustrated. They have a typo and they say, gosh, you know, you can make a like a live real-time video streaming service on top of Twitter that works globally. And yet you can't let me edit the text on this thing. That, that seems outrageous, right? So before we talk about the, the whether it should be done, uh, let's talk about if, if a company like Twitter were to enable editing of tweets, of the core messages that make up the platform, what would some of the considerations be? What are some of the questions you have to answer at a, at a tech level all of a sudden? The first question I would ask
3: is, how do you fan out a tweet to 50 or 60 million followers if someone can edit it every five minutes or every one minute? The technical and the, just the, the scale of something like that is crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. because if, if I were to tweet, I mean, well, let's not use me, let's use, you know, somebody who I, I really like, uh, uh, say Barack Obama tweets something out. And he's got a hundred yeah, 100 million followers or whatever it is, right? A hundred million followers. And he's, he's just like, everyone go out and vote. And he spells vote wrong, which he wouldn't do, right? But still. <laughs> and then 10 minutes later, he realizes that he spelled vote wrong. So he wants to edit that tweet and change it. Well, that tweet has now been fanned out to maybe not 100 million people, but a lot of people. And there have been notifications that are kicked off, and there are retweets that get kicked off, and there's, you know, there's comment tweets that get kicked off. And then all of a sudden, he changes this. Like, so what do you do then? How, how do you handle that? And that's a product decision, and someone needs to map that out and said okay, so if that happens, how do we handle notifications? How do we handle alerts? How do we handle emails? How do we handle everything, right? And, and, and so, so that's just a small, like a very small piece of it. Uh, and, and I think that, that starts to underline a lot of the technical issues. And the technical issues of, of changing something in a real-time system and having it update in a reasonable amount of time you know, across a network that spans the globe, it, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not impossible. Trying to update a tweet while it's still fanning out. Um, I mean, I just, I can't even begin to think about, you know, just how the, the technical challenges of doing that. Uh, the latency that you'd have to start considering when, you know, you literally have a tweet that was sent 10 minutes ago that still hasn't been fanned out to everyone and all, all of a sudden it's been changed. So, so I mean, the the, um, yeah, the amount of churn in the system would be would be pretty interesting.
0: Okay. So you get get into some very, very complicated problems. And it's interesting because it seems to me, you know, uh, from a layperson standpoint, sending a tweet kind of feels like sending an email. Like, here's my message. And it goes out there. And maybe it's going to one recipient or maybe it's going to a couple people I've CC'd. But it's out there and they got it in their inbox and we're all good. And that's sort of how I, you know, kind of imagine at a naive level how Twitter works. But when all of a sudden we're able to make changes and, and keep, you know, assuming we would just keep being able to edit that tweet forever, to me that feels a little bit more like you know like Dropbox or Box, one of these services where it's syncing my files, or like Google Drive, where it's syncing my files between different places, so like they have to be kept in sync all of a sudden.
3: I I, I like that analogy because if you really want to keep, if you think about that and you think about, we'll go back to the Barack Obama example, an account with a hundred million followers. Uh, try syncing with a hundred million followers and then continue to do that. Uh, and then what happens, you know, with accounts that are managed by several people that, you know, you could tweet once from DC and once from Chicago within five minutes of each other, you know, and you and I both have, have watched this things with threaded tweets and, and, uh, and sub tweets and retweets and, and how, how, and then you delete, right. And then you delete a tweet and then you have, you know, tweets that are just hanging out there without any context. Um. Uh, from a product perspective, I, I'm not sure that this is actually solvable. Okay. So
0: that's a very hard technical challenge. Immediately people would start to say, well, maybe you can cheat. Maybe you could only edit your tweet for like 10 seconds after you send it. Or maybe the change could only be like less than five characters because it has to be for typos instead of like changing the meaning of it. So a lot of people have suggested this like you constrain the problem and you you limit the ways that you can edit or for how long you can edit does that does that reduce this technical complexity at all? Does that make it doable, or is it sort of still the same kind of problem? I think it's the same kind of problem, uh,
3: and I think the the testing this out at scale is it would be the issue. Uh, the The problem with with trying to constrain it is now you're adding artificial constraints to or constraints to a system that was never designed for it, and and how do you and and how do you how do you even begin to map that out? Um, how do you even begin to to map that out from a resource uh, consumption standpoint? Uh, because to do something like that is extremely resource intensive. Uh, you know, you now have a timer on every account. You have a timer on every tweet. I, I think constraining it doesn't make it simpler. Constraining it just makes the, the the number of potential
0: fail points smaller. So I am convinced that this is a very, very hard technical problem. And let, let me pretend as if money is no object and technical complexity is no concern, and that we're able to do it anyway. You and I are are the new CEOs of Twitter, and we're able to say, you know what, damn the torpedoes, we are going to go and build an edit button. I don't care what the cost is or how hard the computer science is. Let me shift into what I think is a much harder, more interesting question. Should this be done? Is this a good idea? I, I, I would not answer that question myself.
3: I would get people in the room to help me walk through that. And given Twitter's history uh, and tech's history, I would bring in a lot of women of color. Mm-hmm. I would bring in a lot of marginalized groups uh, who have been abused, who have been harassed, who have been using Twitter from the very beginning. Uh, and, and I would say, let's start talking about what this really means. I would bring in journalists. I would bring in uh, you know, people who have done pu- public policy. And, and I would really start talking this through, because this is not a product decision, given the scope, the reach, and the impact of Twitter, that I think any company, in particular, excuse me, that I think Twitter should make in a silo. I think they have to involve people in something like this outside of Twitter. The, the impact of something like this is so great. Uh, it, to me, it has the potential to make how the Myanmar government is using Facebook to, to foment uh, genocidal mobs, uh, I think it makes that pale in into com- into comparison. Because then you get, then you get people, you know, unfortunately, like heads of state, who could change whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, in a way that could cause confusion, in a way that could cause violence to erupt. And not on a small scale, but you know, potentially on a, on a city or government or, or cross-border scale.
0: Hugely potentially destabilizing to the sort of global media ecosystem, global political ecosystem, if people all of a sudden are able to do and undo messages that they send on Twitter, or are able to change things on the fly, that there's this sort of you can't trust the words in front of you uh, on this platform. That that's at the the you know at a at a very at a macro scale. Let's just boil this down
3: to something smaller. What about a death threat? And, and, and a death threat, I, I, will, I will bring up something that uh, I had very <laughs> I, I had my finger in, uh, which was when Chuck C. Johnson was banned. Chuck C. Johnson as one of the most prolific trolls on Twitter uh, up until he was banned for a death threat uh, against a, a civil rights uh, advocate in 2015. Uh, from Twitter in 2015, early 2015. The tweet that got him banned was, uh, "I, you know, if somebody pays me enough, I can take out you know, someone. And, and when he said this, it, it was very clear what that meant. Imagine if, if he could go back and change one or two words so that it isn't such a threat. Would he still be on Twitter? And the threat is still real. Just because you change it doesn't make it less real and And so I, so I think that that is another consideration, you know at a, at a more you know micro level than than at a macro level.
0: That's kind of terrifying. The idea that editing on Twitter opens us up to abusers, manipulators, uh, taking advantage of the fact that no longer do we know for sure a tweet is a tweet uh, to be able to to really put out messages that they don't have to even be accountable for and a way to target abuse in a way that, is probably more
3: frightening than just a tweet that hangs out there or a tweet that was deleted. Uh, imagine the, the people you and I both know who have gotten terrible threats on Twitter, uh, that mm-hmm. they only see it for five minutes and then the person changes it to something more innocuous. I, I, I mean, talk about gaslighting and triggering people. Th- this is why it's like if you do this, you need to bring people from... So many different places into the room to walk through this,
0: because it it may not be a feature you want to do. That's there that is just an interesting question too, because I think then ordinary users that that want it, you, you know they want to be able to just edit a typo, they have a completely reasonable request. Uh, they start to say they hear these concerns, and you know what I see people say is then, oh well, then you show that it was edited. You show the history. You say, oh, this is what the original version. This is what changed, and then you can see like like Wikipedia lets you do this, or even if you go into. Google Docs or Microsoft Word, you can see the past revisions, track changes on your on your document. Doesn't that solve this problem? If if the, if it was initially a death threat and then you edit it and and now it seems more harmless and innocuous, can't you still go back to the history and see it? Does that solve the issue? It, it's hard to retract
3: a lie once something is out there. You know, people will run with it, and we've seen this over and over again in the last two years where misinformation is purposefully put out there and I, and I do think it's on purpose and and then it's retracted or updated or changed but the lie has already spread given what I know and how I've seen Twitter evolve particularly as an abusive platform or a platform for some abusers it, this this frightens me even more and, and and when I say it frightens me it really frightens me it really frightens me because people all of a sudden don't have to be responsible for even less responsible for what they say today, you know, because they can say, well, that's not what I meant. A perfect example was, uh, what did Trump say about when he was talking to Putin and he had asked Putin a question and, and they, they said, you know, in literally he changed one word and it changed the entire meaning. And that's what he went with. I think that's what we would be giving heads of state. That's what we would be giving, uh, CEOs of companies. I, 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 we won't name any, that's what we would be giving people with, with, you know, millions and ten, tens of millions of followers is, is an ability to not be responsible. And and you have to think about that, before, you know, and, and what is the potential impact? And this is something that uh, it's a conversation that's happening in tech every day now, which is what is our responsibility? To me, that this is the crux of an edit button or any other feature that allows information to be changed, particularly information that's disseminated so quickly and at scale. Is it what is our responsibility? And are we being good stewards when we roll out features that could potentially allow uh, a user, you know, a, a head of state or a, a company to manipulate
0: a country, a people or a market? So, Leslie Miley, I think that question about accountability, responsibility, what these platforms owe to the world in exchange for having connected us and also made billions of dollars doing it. I think that may be the question that we are all reckoning with every day. And I thank you for joining us on Function to dig into it. Thank you for having me. So it's been almost a decade of people on Twitter saying, I wish I could edit my tweets. And I think both Andy and Leslie made a good argument for what are some of the reasons we might want to do it. And even the good benefits that we would have of news organizations, for example, being able to make sure that their tweets are accurate. But Leslie and I went deep into that conversation about the risks and about that bigger issue. Can we trust anything we see online? And that risk seems like a reason to not allow people to edit tweets. You know, I can see the debate. Nobody's ever going to resolve this until Twitter decides one way or the other. But if I'm sitting in their shoes, I have to feel like the danger of undermining people's already fragile trust and the things they read online might make me come down on the side of saying, you know what, if you tweeted it, you got to stand behind it. It is what it is. There's not going to be an edit button on Twitter. That's it for this week of Function. Next week, we are going to talk about YouTube, specifically the way that creators get caught up in copyright while trying to share their ideas or creations on YouTube. We're even going to talk to a lawyer who's an expert on intellectual property right and say what's even possible to do on YouTube. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our associate producer is Maurice Cherry. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our engineers are Swinivas, Rama Ramamurthy and Jarrett Floyd. And thanks to Jelani Carter for your help this week. Our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. And big thanks to the entire team at Glitch. You can follow me on Twitter at Anil Dash. And of course, you can always check out Function at glitch.com slash function. So please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen, and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Keeping up with your competition is important. Taking the lead with unmatched innovation, that is impressive. And that's what's possible when you build your next generation of smart apps on Microsoft Azure. Clear the way for unparalleled productivity with end-to-end development and management tools. Integrate cloud capabilities across your environment with the only consistent hybrid cloud. Discover transformative insights through artificial intelligence and real-time data, and scale across more global regions than you'll get from any other cloud provider. Because every business and every organization, whether small or large, old or new, has something to gain by reaching beyond the limits of an on-premise data center. What will you achieve when you come to the cloud? Get started with a free account and 12 months of popular services at azure.com trial. A-Z-U-R-E dot slash trial.